0: Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell and you are listening to the third portion of Parshat Shlach. We are now ready to read God's response to the nation's rebellion in the aftermath of the spies' report after returning from their 40-day mission to Eretz Israel. We are in verse 11. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe Ad'ana yinatsuni ha'am hazeh Ana lo y'aminu vi b'chol Asher Asiti b'kirbo Hashem said to Moshe how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which i have performed in their midst the repetition of Ad'ana till when expresses a sense of hopelessness a loss of patience expressing what we have previously stated Can all of the miracles that God God has done for the nation go unnoticed? Verse 12 I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Does this sound familiar? An echo of the sin of the golden calf with one major discrepancy. In both accounts of the sin of the golden calf in Shmot, and when Moshe recounts this episode in Sefer Dvarim. In Shmot chapter 32, it says, Ve'ata bahem v'achalem, gadol. Now let me be, and my anger will burn against them and destroy them, and I will make you into a great nation. And in Dvarim, chapter 9, Heref mimeni ve'ashmidem. Leave me, and I will destroy them. And I will make you into a greater and larger nation. In both instances, by God saying, Leave me, or let me be, He is essentially putting the ball into Moshe's court. God is essentially inviting Moshe to pray to save them. In that sense, it almost makes it a foregone conclusion. If God wants Moshe to pray, certainly then he wants to forgive them. But here, Hanichali or Mimeni is missing. A sense of hopelessness and a decision. Moshe's decision whether to intervene in this event will be far more dramatic for two reasons. One, as we have said, he was not invited to intervene. God just says he wants to destroy them. Number two, at the sin of the golden calf, Moshe was not affronted. God was. Moshe was absent. Therefore, Moshe intervening on behalf of Bnei Israel as a mediator makes a lot of sense. Here, Moshe too was rejected. They want to appoint a new leader and reject Moshe. They want to stone his loyal servant, Yoshua. Moshe is ostensibly not in a position to be a mediator here. He is a side in this story. What will Moshe do? How will he react? Verse thirteen. And the Lord said unto Moses, and said unto the children of Israel, That the elite and the chief of the people of this generation shall go up to the Lord, and shall V'amru ha-goyim asher sham'u'at shim'acha'a le-mor, M'bil-ti yichol et Adonai le et am haze'el ha-art lahem b'yish'chatem Bamidbar. But Moshe said to Hashem, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Hashem, are in the midst of this people, for you, Hashem, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, because Hashem could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness." What we have read here echoes once again the sin of the golden calf. But when we read and compare, we will see how much more complex Moshe's argument is here. In Shmot 32.12, Moshe makes a similar argument in less than one verse. Why should the Egyptians say, For their bad, he took them out, to kill them in the mountains and to dispose of them from the face of the earth. Or, as it's presented in Dvarim chapter 9, verse 28, Lest the nation that you took them from will say, i.e. Egypt, From a lack of ability... Of God to bring them into the land that He promised them, and from hating them, He took them out to kill them in the desert. In both cases, the subject is what will Egypt say? In Shmot, Egypt will say God took them out in order to destroy them, and in Dvarim, Egypt will say that God did not have the power to take them to Eretz Israel, so He destroyed them. So a discrepancy exists as to what the actual claim would be, but it is focused on what Egypt will say, and it is said in one brief pasuk. In our parasha, Moshe takes four psukim to make what sounds like a similar claim as to the one in Devarim, God's inability to take them into Eretz Yisrael. But that is finally said in the fourth and final pasuk of this argument. Who will make this claim? Three potential speakers in these verses. Egypt, the dwellers of Canaan, and the generic Goyim that know God's name. Rashi is of the opinion that Egypt is the speaker, and ultimately this is no different than the claim in Dvarim. The Chizkuni makes the same claim. Ramban, agreeing with Rashi on the speaker, points to a different, a slightly differing point. While Rashi puts his finger on the claim that the Canaanites are stronger than the Egyptians and God cannot defeat the Canaanites, the Ramban puts his finger on the claim that the Egyptians will conclude that God is stronger than the Egyptian gods, but not than the Canaanite gods. The commentaries I saw do not address the length of Moshe's claim the confusion as to who is the ultimate speaker. What can be said about that? I have two suggestions that both stem from the following assumption. The situation at the sin of the spies is far more dire than the sin of the golden calf, as hard as that is to believe. What are the proofs of this assumption? One, we already mentioned that God does not invite Moshe to pray. Two, This is after so much more water has gone under the bridge. God has done so much more for the nation. The nation has had so many more opportunities to learn. Three, and most importantly, the sin of the spies is after the sin of the golden calf. The Jewish people have been threatened to be destroyed once. You learn that lesson once. You get a second chance once. Sin again of this magnitude might not be getting a second chance. That being said, Moshe has to dig deeper to save the nation at this time. One suggestion to explain the length of Moshe's prayer is that Moshe is actually not clear because he is praying under tremendous amount of pressure. He is moving around saying things perhaps not clearly. Some Some indications of that are Why is Egypt speaking to the Canaanites? Why are they telling them about the miracles that God did in the wilderness and not in Egypt, as is described in verse 14? What does the word Sham'u in verse 14 mean? Grammatically, it is difficult to understand it in this context. A second, perhaps more likable suggestion is that Moshe is intentionally broadening the scope of the Chilul Hashem, the desecration of God's name in his argument, to include also the Egyptians, also the Canaanites, and also the generic Goyim, in order to increase the price that God will pay for destroying his nation. If the desecration of God's name in the the face of the Egyptians is sufficient to save the nation from God's wrath at the sin of the golden calf, that will not be enough now. Moshe now turns to the second stage of his prayer. Verse 17 avon but now i pray let the power of the hashem be great Just as you have declared, Hashem is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. What does turning to God and asking him to make his power great mean? The chizkuni and others explain it it means to have God's attribute of mercy overcome his attribute of justice. Justice demands the end of the nation, but mercy may overcome justice. And to this, Moshe continues with what seems like quoting the 13 attributes of mercy that Moshe was taught in Sefer Shemot in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. But anyone familiar with the 13 attributes will see clear gaps elements missing in our verses. Nonetheless, Rashi, citing a Gemara in Masachat Sanadrin, claims that what Moshe said in verse 18 are the 13 attributes of mercy. Ramban, however, goes through one by one, explaining why each attribute that is missing is in fact missing. The common denominator, the severity of the situation at the sin in comparison to the sin of the golden calf, does not allow for the full 13 attributes. It is just not relevant. Specifically, the Ramban notes the absence of invoking the merits of our forefathers. The nation has rejected the land promised to the forefathers. Invoking their merit is irrelevant. Verse twenty. So Hashem said, "I have pardoned them according to your word." In the face of this huge obstacle. Moshe's truncated thirteen attributes prevail. God will not destroy the nation. He will forgive. But with a big however. Just like the Ephes in the report of the spies, in the next verse we will read the however. Verse 21. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Hashem. God takes an oath in his own name in words that remind us of Kedushah, milo kol haaretz kevodo, ve'imrech kevod hashem et kol haaretz. Verse 22. What is the oath? Ki kol hanasim ro'im et kevodi ve'et ototai, asher asiti ve'mitzotai uv'midbar, ve'nisu oti zeh 10 pe'amim, ve'lo shama'u bekolay. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. The people who merited to see God's miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness, but tested and angered God, will not see the land, the promised land. From the next verse, we see that this edict is all-inclusive of the nation, but of one. Verse 24. Verse <laughs> 24. But my servant Kalev, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring it into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Kalev alone is expect, accepted from God's oath. Kalev indeed played a unique role in combating the spies at the initial stage. Everyone else is included. What of Yoshua? What of Moshe and Aharon? More importantly, how will this edict be implemented? At this point, the Torah does not say. What does the Torah say? In verse 25, Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This verse is unclear. What does it mean that the Amalekites and Canaanites are in the valley? Based on the continuation of the verses at the end of the chapter, it is a threat. Here it is still unclear. A point we will need to address is an apparent contradiction regarding the location of these two nations. Here they are described in the valley, but later on they are described as descending from the mountain. More importantly, however, is a direction. Go back to the wilderness. Go back to the Red Sea. Go back from where you came from, because you are no longer going to where you thought you were going. Moshe does not respond to God's edict. The next communication between Moshe and God is initiated by God and is an apparent continuation or perhaps expansion of his oath. Verse 26. As Rashi points out, despite the word Eida, congregation, this verse is not referring to the entire congregation, but rather to the spies who caused the nation to complain. Malinim is a causative verb. It does not describe the act of complaining. It describes causing others to complain. Yet they are called a congregation. From here, the sages learn that a congregation, a Midian, includes 10 men, as the number of spies who caused the nation to complain, 12, excluding Kalev and Yahushua, equal 10. But quickly, God stops talking about those people and only returns to them in verse 35 something we will need to address as well as besides the halachic lesson about Aminyan. Why are these ten men referred to as Ida? Verse 28 We'll go back and translate from verse 26, which I believe we did not translate. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aharon saying, How long shall I bear with evil, with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, said Hashem, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpse will fall in this wilderness, wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. God once again takes an oath, and says, I will do just as you asked. You asked to die in the desert, so it will be. But didn't Moshe just pray to spare the nation? Did God not say, kidvarecha"? So God mitigates his initial words. Not everybody, everyone from 20 years and older that are part of the generation of complainers. The way to save the nation from utter destruction is to kill everyone from 20 years and older. That is at least our impression at this point. Verse 30. Imatem Tavo El Haaretz, Asher Nasatiat Yadila Shakenethembah, Kim Kalev bin Yifunevioshua Binun, Vitapekem Ashera Martem La Vazi Hie Vevetio Tamviadeu et Haaretz Asherme Astemba. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Kalev the son of Yefune and Yoshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey. I will bring them in, and they will know the land you have rejected. The exceptions to the death sentence are Kalev and Yoshua, both who together defended the honor of God and Eretz Yisrael against the slander of the spies, and the children, the babies, more literally, they will know the land that you despised. In last week's parasha, the nation despised or rejected God, and in this week's parasha, they add Eretz Yisrael to that list. Verse 32, Ufigrechem <laughs> atem yipelu Midbar hazeh, But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpse lie in the wilderness. This is the first indication that the death sentence for those over 20 was not an immediate Death sentence, as we might have initially thought, but a process. The sons of this generation will be in the wilderness for forty years till the end of your dead bodies in the desert. In other words, it will take forty years for the generation to die out. Verse thirty (inaudible) four. according to the number of the days which you spied out the land 40 days for every day you shall bear your guilt a year even 40 years and you will know my opposition i hashem have spoken Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. We conclude the words of the death sentence with the word Eda, congregation. This time clearly referring to the entire nation. When we began with Eda referring to the ten sinful spies. But now the Torah returns to address the sinful spies themselves. In verse 36. Vaha anashim asher shallach et haaretz vayashuvu vayalinu alavet Kol Haida otzidi ba al haaretz vayamutu ha anashim mozidi ba taaretz raa ba ma gaifa lif ne adonai viushua bin enun ve chaleb bin yfune heumin ha anashim ahem haolechim et haaretz as for the men moshe sent to seek out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before Hashem. But Yoshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Yiphuneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. The ten spies, excluding Yoshua and Caleb, sometimes numbered Caleb and Yoshua previously. Now, again, previously to that, Yoshua and Kalev, and of course, sometimes Kalev is unknown. They die immediately, those 10 spies. So what has happened here? In the previous section, God threatened to destroy the entire nation and create a new nation from Moshe. Moshe prayed and God forgave, but swore that the people would not see, the, would not see Eretz Israel. How would this transpire? The Torah initially did not say. Subsequently, verse 27 began with discussing the, the fate of the spies and called them Eidah, without telling us their fate. Suddenly, verses 28 through 35, digressed from the spies and discussed the fate of the generation of the 20 years and older. Death, but not an immediate death, but a slow death over 40 years in the desert. They too are called Eda. Finally, the Torah switches back to the spies and tells us they die immediately. Why the back and forth? Why intertwine the nation's fate with that of the spies? Why not tell us first one and then the other? It appears that the Torah is telling us that the fate of the spies and the nation are one and the same. They are both the Eidah. They both must die. There is no prayer to save the nation because God mitigates the death of a nation to a slow death over 40 years. During that time, they will not enter Eretz Yisrael. They will stay with their families, even bear new children who will enter Eretz Yisrael, but they will die like the spies. And that is the ultimate message of intertwining their two fates. And finally, verse 39. When Moshe spoke these words to all of the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. A mourning falls over the nation, once again echoing the mourning of the nation in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf, in Shmot chapter 33, verse 4. In both sins, God threatens to destroy the nation and replace them with a new nation from Moshe. In both, Moshe prays and God pulls back the total all-encompassing punishment. In both, the people mourn their fate. But here, the stories take a major divergence. In the sin of the golden calf, Moshe is not finished. He continues to beseech and pray to God. He comes closer to God. The 13 attributes of mercy are revealed. A new covenant is struck. Perhaps despite the sin or even as a result of the sin and its healing, the relationship between God and the nation seems stronger. In the sin of the spies, once Moshe saves the nation from destruction, he is done. No round two of prayers. Saving the nation from destruction is the end game. Once they are, Moshe is done the fact that they actually do get a death sentence, just a mitigated one that allows for the nation's survival. There is mourning and that seems almost the end game except for a failed attempt to repent which we will read about in the next section. What happened to Moshe's prayers? What happened to optimism? How do we continue with the finality of this death sentence? One final remark. This analysis makes what we say during the Yom Kippur prayer service seem like a, that seems like a highlight in a new light. Vayomer Adonai Salachti Kidvarecha is God forgiving as Moshe requested. The nation will not be destroyed. A worthy matter to pray for on Yom Kippur, but Salachti Kidvarecha cannot be the end game of Yom Kippur. It can be the beginning of Yom Kippur. We want to save our nation, but of course, we want so much more on Yom Kippur. That tikid varecha is a goal, but a goal on the way to much loftier goals on Yom Kippur. We will conclude the story of the spies in the next section of our parasha. parasha.